What's up, everybody? This is Esoteric Eddie. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast version of Esoteric Eddie TV. I hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. Hell does not exist. Hell was not originally in the Bible. What's up, everybody? Esoteric Eddie here. Namaste. Today, we're going to do a brief dive into the subject of hell and examine whether or not it was actually written in the Bible. All right, we're going to examine two articles um, that I've chosen for this video. This is not a deep dive. Of course, this is a huge subject, um, but I think these articles definitely set the foundation and cover a lot of the, the basic information to get you going on this subject. So this first article was written by an Ali Kellogg and is titled A History of Hell, Gehenna and Beyond. And uh, before we get started, I just want to say that, you know, um, hell was a huge thing for me growing up. You know, it uh, played a huge role in how I viewed life and the world. And I was afraid of it, man. I was like really afraid of hell. And I think a lot of people are. And a lot of people live their lives based off of that fear. And so I hope that this video will help dispel some of that fear and and also help you appreciate just the present moment. You know, I, I've known people personally who live with a very real fear of hell and it stopped them from living their life. You know, I mean, it's not like they were bad people, but they just wouldn't do certain things that would stop them from enjoying themselves and life. And so... um I think that we could do ourselves a service by looking at this stuff historically and moving forward existentially, you know, as people and, and really questioning questioning what we believe. And as we go through this, you'll I'll kind of jump in and, and give you my opinions and ideas on what hell might really be, you know, um, as we move through this. Of course, so... Get into this article, of course, like usual. I already read through all the information for you and highlighted some of the more important points for this video. So let's just go through the highlights together and see what's going on. So hell is embedded into our lives, whether we believe it, whether we believe in it or not. It's a place mutually visited by every person's imagination that has been exposed to an Abrahamic society. Again, true, I grew up in a Christian home, and anybody who's, you know, been touched by an Abrahamic faith among the process of them being on this earth, which is pretty much all of us, has at one point or another told, been told that they're going to go to hell or something like that, you know. But hell is actually based off an ancient landfill. There is no mention of a hell in the Bible. In Jerusalem, in the Valley of Hinnom, there is a large trash dump referred to in the book of Matthew as Gehenna. And real quick, I decided to do this subject because I'm actually working on a bigger project on uh, the history of Moloch. And during that process, I uh, came across this whole idea of Gehenna and the Valley of Hinnom and both of the subjects, those and Moloch, 
are interconnected and so i thought this was interesting and uh again i might do a deeper dive on this later but i don't think it's necessary it's very um trivial information and widely overlooked by the by the by the world but um yeah so this this landfill um known as this this ancient landfill known as the valley of hinnom also known as gehenna played a huge role in the development of the archetype and idea of hell it was originally used by the ancient israelites who sacrificed children and burnt their bodies to appease the pagan canaanite god molech in Leviticus 18.20, God expressed his hatred of the false god Molech and deemed the place unclean. Gehenna was eventually used as a landfill by the inhabitants of Jerusalem where people took their trash to be burned. The place began to wreak havoc on daily lives in Jerusalem. The smell of burning sewage, flesh, maggots, and garbage wreaked absolute havoc on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, causing documented medical problems like nausea and breathing difficulty. Gehenna was used as a metaphor for the final place of punishment for the wicked. Yeah, so Gehenna is a is a word for this place known as the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And uh Gehenna is actually the Greek word for that place. The the Hebrew term for that place was uh or is Gai Ben Hinnom. Gai Ben Gai Ben Hinnom, Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And so that was shortened by the Greeks to Gehenna, also known as Gehenom. And uh, as the article stated, it was a place where the ancient Israelites and pre-Israelites used to burn children and sacrifice them to Moloch. And that place was later turned into a landfill where people would burn their trash. And it was a vile place of trash and filth that led to disease and disgust and pollution. And so I think all of these things kind of crept into the subconscious mind of the ancient people and was a perfect archetype for the later idea of hell, as we shall see. Now, the modern English word hell is a derivative of, of an old English word, hell or helle, I guess, first documented around 724 AD, to refer to the netherworld of the dead. Yeah, so hell is, is an ancient, like, Indo-Aryan word. You know, like we have Helsinki, coming from the polar north of Europe. And uh, so hell, yeah, of course, was, was, wasn't even used in the Bible to begin with. Yeah, it was later used as a translation for Gehenna. And as the article states, pagans were ironically executed at the same time their mythology was being plagiarized by their very executioners. Yeah, it's no secret. You know, obviously the Roman Empire uh, amalgamated all of the cultures and mythologies into what would become the televangelist Christianity that we have today. And among that process, they incorporated some of these Indo-Aryan ideas and Greek ideas of hell and uh, stuff like that. Jesus specifically refers to Gehenna 11 times in the New Testament, but not hell. The Islamic version of hell in the Quran is known as Jahannam, translated from Gehenna or Gehennam. Now, of course, Islam is the sequel 
to Christianity and the third part to the trilogy of the Abrahamic faiths. The Empire Strikes Back with a turban. Um, yeah, so it's it's obvious that the Quran's term for hell, Jahannam, was influenced and simply a rendition of the uh, Greek Gehenna or Gehenom. You know, of course, all being uh, influenced from this valley of the son of Hanom. And we actually don't know who this Hanom was. I learned through my, through my process of the Moloch documentary. Um, it, yeah, it was just a, a valley that used to belong to this guy named Hanom. And later was rented out to these weird Molochites and these weird worshippers of Moloch. He was like, hey man, can we, can we burn our children over here? Is that cool? Are you, are you using this? Can we... Is, it, is that cool? Hanom's right there just counting his cash. Yeah, man, it's all good. Go ahead. Just disappeared from history. You should have never sold him that land, Hanom. <laughs> anyway. Um, the story of hell, as we know it, is first solidly referenced in the Apocalypse of Peter as an early Christian text published in the 2nd century AD. And for those of you who don't know, of course we have the Apocalypse of St. John, the book of Revelation, but there were at least two other apocalypses that were written by, supposedly written by the apostles, one being the Apocalypse of Peter, and these apocalypses were edited out or rejected from the later canonized version, or yeah, canonized version of the Bible. And I wonder why. It makes me suspicious, you know? Obviously, we have the Apocrypha and all of that. But were they taken out because they were crazy or just fanatical or not canonized, not divinely inspired? Or were they taken out because they're actually the extra keys to the book of Revelation? Should we read all of them together? Should I do that? Should I do a deep dive on all of the apocalypses? Maybe the church doesn't want us to read them all, because what if we read them all at the same time in a circle, and then a portal opens up, and we get to, like, go to the future or something? I don't know. Just a theory. Conjecture, if you will. The apocalypse of Peter was edited out of the Bible later on and replaced with Another similar apocalyptic text, yeah, the book of Revelation. Some biblical scholars will quite literally cite that Peter was a raving, mad, bumbling, old lunatic, and thus, in his narrative, was discredited with haste. I mean, weren't they all kind of that way? But this is kind of hypocritical. So everything else Peter did, yay! A plus, man decides to write this like super gnarly psychedelic apocalypse in his old age and now we're like yeah sure grandpa sure let's let's get you to bed apocalypse hell yeah sure buddy like maybe we should probably pay attention to it you know i don't know man it's just like why why how do we choose among these crazy texts like oh yeah peter sorry all this stuff just not cutting it, man. John did a way cooler job. I mean, he's talking about, you know, this Mark of the Beast, 666. Dude, it's freaking awesome. All right, sorry, Peter, but you're just a bumbling old lunatic. Sorry. I don't know, man. <laughs> like, 
it's just all so ridiculous. But anyways, um, examining the Old Testament. So, of course, the Israelites, the Jewish people before Christianity, didn't believe in a hell, didn't believe in a, even in an afterlife. The Hebrew word uh, for the afterlife was Sheol, which means the place of the dead or the grave. Sheol is a neutral term and has no connotations of punishment. It's simply the place we go to when our bodies stop working. Yeah, so to them, it was just like, from ashes we came, to ashes we will go. And uh, it wasn't until later that the Jewish people, the, excuse me, the Israelites, developed these ideas of heaven and hell in an afterlife. And it was during and after the Babylonian exile that they developed these. And I've written about this. I've made a lot of content about this. I've spoken on this. I've spoken on this on many different podcasts. And um, of course, during the Babylonian exile, the Jewish elite were held captive. And during that time and after, they were influenced by a lot of the other mythologies and and uh, philosophies around them, particularly that of the Zoroastrians, who were the ones who freed them. And the Zoroastrians had a very distinct belief on the idea of a war between good and evil, on an afterlife, and even the idea of uh, a coming Messiah and Redeemer. And so it's like, it's obvious, man. Before, they don't believe in an afterlife or a war between good and evil, per se, in the way that we do now. And they don't believe in a Messiah and then they meet the Zoroastrians who believe in all of that. And all of a sudden they believe in all of that. And they're like, <clears throat> yeah, no, we, we, always, we always believed in that. Yeah, yeah. Sure, dude. Like, I just don't get how people don't see how obvious all of this is. But, it, but it's all right, man. Yeah, so uh, this cultural exchange laid the grounds for the major Abrahamic religions as we know them. Of course. And if you need some more information on that, go read my book, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed. Famously toured around the world through many, many podcasts. So it's important to acknowledge that the concept of a world one enters after death is not original or unique to early monotheists. The ancient Egyptians had a place called Duat, referenced heavily in their book of the dead. The dead who enter Duat must travel through various gates, guarded by anthropomorphic hybrids of human bodies with various animal heads. These gatekeepers were ferocious and vile. For evidence, one need not look beyond their names. Guardians of the gates of Duat had charming titles like, One Who Eats the Excrement from His Ass. Damn, he would make it uh, really big on OnlyFans these days. And Blood Drinker Who Lives in the Slaughterhouse. <laughs> what the heck, Egyptians? I feel like I'm walking through like a haunted house. Like, welcome to the duet. Five bucks. If you can make it through one who eats the excrement from his own ass. And you're doing good. The next step, though, is Blood Drinker Who Lives in the Slaughterhouse. He's not so nice. Like, what? Alright, dude. And then I guess after that, should the deceased successfully pass through the gates, they faced one final test. 
Maat, the goddess of truth and justice, who carried out the weighing of the heart, divine judgment. Yeah, so there's this idea of gates, houses, heavens, layers, which um, I'll expand a bit more on a little later. Uh, look at that. All right. Um, in ancient Rome, the underworld is described in a poem of Virgil as a place full of flaming rivers with triple thick walls to prevent sinners from escaping. Gotta have them triple thick walls. Black gates guarded by a hydra, a sort of giant dragon with 100 heads. That's that's actually pretty, pretty uh, menacing right there. And the goddess of revenge who sits atop a tower with a whip lashing the sinful populace that fills its dark caverns. Ooh, being whipped by the goddess. All right. Kind of weird. Kinky. The ancient Maya also had an underworld, Shibalba, as described in their sacred text, the Popol Vuh. My people, yo. Similarly, Shibaba had various houses one had to travel through that challenged the deceased soul. Curiously enough, there was a house of fire. Alright, so this idea of houses, gates, what this makes me think of is dimensions. I've always said, at least recently, that I don't believe after we die, we go straight to a heaven or to a hell. I think that is a naive assumption to think that just because we've lived a life, we get to go to a heaven or go to a hell. I think that there are varying dimensions, just as our ancestors believed. And after this dimension, we are faced with an awakening and realize that we were in a dream all along and the real journey has yet to even begin. Um, but we have to go to school here first. And if we don't pass school, what happens? We flunk and then we are held back. Samsara, reincarnation, gray alien recycle, soul trap. So you got to go to school. You got to get it right so you can ascend. Because this, isn't, this ain't even it. There are so many other dimensions, so many gates and houses of weird beings angelic and demonic waiting for us and so th that's kind of what i think happens you know I, I, is there a hell i think there is a hell like dimension i think there is a hell like dimension um but it's not what we think and i'll get more into that let's get into the second and final article uh, so thank you again uh, mrs kellogg the second article was put together by Bart Ehrman. Now, if you don't know who Bart Ehrman is, man, I highly recommend you going and checking out his stuff. He's a grade A certified scholar. Uh, really, really knows what he's talking about. I mean, the dude's been around for a long time, like an actual scholar. And he wrote this for Time Magazine. And the article is titled, What Jesus Really Said About Heaven and Hell. And this was put together in 2020, not that long ago. And so he starts the article off by stating that the hero of the Epic of Gilgamesh rides in the rides in agony at the prospect of spending eternity groveling in dust, being eaten by worms. Yeah, so a lot of the 
a- ancient people didn't even believe in an afterlife. They just thought, this is it. You know, once the body drops, that's it. You know, so the idea of an afterlife has been a uh, developing idea in, in our conscious and subconscious mind. And I think that's by design, I think, in this strange multidimensional thing that we live in, toroidal simulation. Um, some of the other dimensions have yet to even been built. You know? But uh, that is a little too heady for right now. All right. Unlike most ge- geeks, unlike, unlike most Greeks, ancient Jews traditionally did not believe the soul could exist at all, apart from the body. On the contrary, for them, the soul was more like the breath. The first human god created Adam, being began okay the first human god created adam began as a lump of clay then god breathed life into him adam remained alive until he stopped breathing then it was dust to dust ashes to ashes i mean (laughs) ashes to ashes whoa freudian slip bruh yeah so again they did they didn't even believe in an afterlife this was developed later after they met their Zoroastrian brothers. They were like, yo, man, I like this afterlife stuff because going to the dirt and being eaten by worms, whack, not down. The Hebrew Bible uses the mysterious term Sheol to describe a person's new location. But in most instances, Sheol is simply a synonym or tomb or grave. It's not a place someone actually goes. So again, man, we we misunderstood a lot of this, mistranslated. We didn't have the cultural context. We're reading this stuff about Gehenna, Sheol, and and uh, just thought that we're just, we thought that they were talking about this afterlife place, but it was apparent. It is apparent that our ancestors, the Jewish ancestors, didn't even believe in an afterlife, let alone a heaven or hell. You know, and the whole idea of hell being this fiery furnace spawned from the valley of sun, uh, the valley of the son of Hinnom, Hinnom, Gehenna, and so all of this, you know, uh, amalgamated into an archetype that took hold in in our subconscious that was later used by by Jesus, because it was something that all of the people at that time could understand as a metaphor. Jesus' stress on the absolute annihilation of sinners appears throughout his teachings. At one point, he says there are two gates, again with the gates, dimensions, that people pass through. One is narrow and requires a difficult path, but leads to life. Few go that way. The other is broad and easy, and therefore commonly taken, but it leads to destruction. It is an important word. The wrong path does not lead to torture. So to Jesus, uh, so too, Jesus says the future kingdom is like a fisherman who hauls in a large net. After sorting through the fish, he keeps the good ones and throws the other ones out. He doesn't torture them. They just die. Or the kingdom is like a person who gathers up the plants that have grown in his field. He keeps the good grain, but tosses the weed into a fiery furnace. These don't burn forever. They are consumed by fire and then are no more. Other passages may seem to suggest 
that there is some sort of hell. Um, like in Matthew 25, uh, we are told that the wicked are sent to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But when Jesus summarizes his point, he explains that the contrasting fates are eternal life and eternal punishment. They are not eternal pleasure and eternal pain. The opposite of life is death, not torture. So the punishment is annihilation. But why does it involve eternal fire? Because the fire never goes out. The flames, not the torments, go on forever. And why is the punishment called eternal? Because it will never end. These people will be, these people will be annihilated forever. That is not pleasant to think about, but it will not hurt once it's finished. And so this is a pretty revolutionary idea here. You know, first of all, the Jews didn't believe in hell, didn't even believe in an afterlife. They believed in Sheol, just from dust to dust. And then the, the, the Christians come along, who are also influenced by Greek thought. And it was the Greeks who were already speaking of afterlifes and, and uh, souls and stuff like that. And develop these ideas about uh, a heaven, uh, some sort of hell, some sort of afterlife. But never used the word hell. They used the word Gehenna, which again referred to this valley where children were sacrificed by way of fire which was later turned into a landfill in which trash was thrown into a fire that resulted into a degradation of society because of bacteria and pollution. And so we have this archetype being formed of hell, desecration, degradation, and so on and so forth that Jesus was using as a metaphor for something else. And as Bart Ehrman points out here, that something else was not eternal torture, but eternal annihilation. And that's actually even worse. Because to be tortured for eternity, it almost insinuates that there's some sort of retribution. And I'll get into that later on. But to be annihilated completely gone that's menacing that is hellish you know what i mean like just gone annihilated nothing not even to be used by the gray aliens in this soul recyclement not even to be used by the reptilians by some slave some slave minded you know ai half human half robot thing whatever you like never to be utilized never to be recycled or used again just annihilated that's pretty wild but i'll get more into what i think about that towards the end so from at least the time of socrates many greek thinkers had subscribed to the idea of the immortality of the soul even though the human body dies the human soul both will not and cannot die Later Christians who came out of Gentile circles adopted this view for themselves and reasoned that if souls are built to last forever, their ultimate fates will do so as well. It will be either eternal bliss or eternal torment. Again, the Christians were influenced by a lot of the Greek thought. Socrates himself expressed the idea most memorably 
went on trial before an Athenian jury on capital charges. His apology, that is, legal defense, can still be read today, recorded by his most famous pupil, Plato. Socrates openly declares that he sees no reason to fear the death sentence. On the contrary, he is rather energized by the idea of passing on from this life. I mean, yeah, he's like, yo, just let me go, man, because this ain't it. For real. For Socrates, death will be one of two things. One, or on one hand, it may entail the longest, most untroubled, deep sleep that could be imagined. And is that really all too bad? You know? I mean, it sucks, you know, that we'll just be sleeping forever. But, man, sometimes, like, that doesn't sound too bad. On the other hand, it may involve a conscious existence. That, too, would be good. Even better. And that pretty much wraps up um, Ehrman's article. And so what Socrates was saying, what Ehrman is saying, is that to, to live anything after this would be kind of good. To, to have a chance to still be alive at all after this is, is awesome and amazing. You know, in the simplest uh, definition of the words, to be annihilated completely and, and to have zero chance of conscious existence at all ever again, that is hell. And so I think, first and foremost, our ancient ancestors, when they spoke of gates and levels and stuff like that and houses, I think what they were trying to, to, to describe was dimensions. I do believe, and we now know that we live in an, uh, a multi-dimensional universe. And so I don't think we go to a heaven or hell right away. We go through these different dimensions. And again, if Jesus was who he said he was, he would have known this. He knows that there are different dimensions. And this idea of our souls being annihilated um, by way of fire, I think that what really happens if we are to be thrown out by our Creator, our soul gets thrown back into Source. Because Source, which a lot of mystics and, and spiritualists mistake as being the place we want to go back to, I think is actually the place we don't want to go back to. Source, I think, is this unfathomable light. It's not even light. It, we can only perceive it as light, but it, it is a, a, something way beyond light. And it is a place where we go to be annihilated, to immerse ourselves back into the soup of nothingness and allness at the same time. And I think that is where we ultimately go, ultimately, ultimately go when we are completely exhausted through all the dimensions and everything. When we are truly aged as a soul, we go back to source willingly as a sacrifice to say, you know what? My soul has done everything it needed to do. I am here at the great fire, at the great light, to be annihilated, dissolved back into source, to be to be recycled. Not in a samsara way, but in a very unfathomable, soft way. And where our ego, our consciousness, everything that we are is completely dissolved into source and recalibrated to be used for something else. I don't know. And so, 
again, I think <laughs> all those ideas, d- dimensions, source, annihilation are concepts we couldn't have understood back in those ancient times. So Jesus was using cultural references, saying, look, that fire where we used to throw babies in and where trash used to be thrown, that's where you're going to go, man, if you don't if you don't shape up, mister or miss. You know, but it's way deeper than that, man. And, um, yeah, I don't want to be annihilated. And so I think that's also another reason why it's very important for us to self-realize and strengthen our consciousness, strengthen our connection to to uh, the Creator and strengthen our our uh, experiences with our with our consciousness and create those distinctions between the mind and body, so that when we do transition, we not we are one not easily tricked back into samsara, but two can also weave ourselves through the astral realm and through the dimensions. Because I, I imagine that, as the Egyptian texts say, there will be all sorts of beings waiting for us on those on that other side and in those other dimensions and so we need to be strong in our uh afterlife judgments and and travels through the different dimensions you know but does a hell exist of torment i think that yeah i think there could be some dimension out there that does resemble what we picture hell being like but check this out man i was thinking about this too Again, if if we do go to a hell where we are tortured, I think if we do go to some sort of hell in which we are tortured for eternity, that sort of insinuates that there is a chance for retribution. You know, at least that's what I want to believe because to be annihilated, that means yeah, I mean that that is the ultimate punishment. You're just gone. You are never to be used again as a consciousness and an ego. But I think if we go to a, a hell, we might experience it as eternity. But that's only because we have a limited understanding. I think that hell is not eternal. That's just how we perceive it because we are constrained to time, space, understanding. I think hell is sort of like a DMT trip where... We think we are in this moment eternally, but it's actually only like five seconds, five minutes. And I think, unknown to us, that if we do go to a place like that, God is actually giving us a chance at some sort of retribution. We're still alive. We're still there to play the game. And so I think at some moment, God will snap his fingers or its fingers or whatever, and the simulation will end. I think hell is just a simulation, a sort of psychedelic trip that feels like eternity, but it'll end at some point if we've beaten that game somehow, and we'll just end up in some white space purgatory and be like, whoa, what the heck? And God will be like, what's up, man? And we're like, what the? I thought I was just in hell. He's going to be like, oh, hell, nah, man, that was just like five seconds. You know, because we're going to think that it was like eternity, but it's just like this psychedelic trip where time doesn't actually exist. And so, yeah, I believe if there is a hell of torment, it's just another dimension, another simulation that seems like it lasts eternity, in eternity, but it's only lasting like five seconds. And so when it ends, and the trip ends, God's going to be like, all right, man, you ready? You ready to be good? ready to 
keep going with this thing? And we're gonna be like, yeah, for sure. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm totally not gonna do all that crazy stuff I did. You know, but if we've gone too far for whatever reason, and God deems it necessary to annihilate us, that's pretty bad, man. That's pretty bad. And it's crazy now to think about it. If we are microcosms of our creator, prison is probably as hellish as anything can get on this earth. Right? And it's interesting how even in prison, we are given a chance at retribution, not just by the system, but by our peers. And it's interesting how there are certain crimes that not even the prisoners will forgive you for. And isn't it interesting that those very crimes that will get you annihilated, murdered in prison, involve children? The very same practice and action in which God forsake Gehenna for, essentially the very same action that took place in Gehenna. I don't know, just a strange connection there, but uh, yeah, man, I think the afterlife is full of multi-dimensions, alternate realities. There is a hell-like dimension, but it doesn't last an eternity. It only seems that way to our limited mind. And as long as we are conscious at all in the afterlife, that that means there is some sort of continuance of a chance for redemption and the ultimate hell is annihilation and that takes place by being thrown into or going back into source anyways man i hope that helps you in any way um, for those of you suffering from the idea of hell you're gonna be okay i trust me i believe you will do good speak good be good think good as the Zoroastrians would say. But um, yeah, thank you everybody for checking this out. Uh, as usual, I love y'all. Peace.